0: For me personally, I see um, reading Indigenous as a decolonizing act. Uh, Whether it's about intergenerational trauma, speculative futures, colonization, resilience, family, or just everyday joy, books by Indigenous authors bring perspectives that are not part of um, many of our lived experience, and it can't be found anywhere else.
1: Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers, by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list.
0: We are going to be talking about indigenous authors. Um, So, I did want to flush that out a little bit. Indigenous or First People in Canada include First Nations people, Métis and Inuit people. Of course, there are Indigenous people literally all over the world. Uh, You might know Maori in New Zealand, Indigenous Australians, Sami in Northern Europe, or any of the many, 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 many other Indigenous groups all over the world. But Indigenous identity is not limited to authors with a status card. The best way to find out if an author is Indigenous is to see how they identify. So I like to make sure that I always read the bio um, before I read the book. For me personally, I see um, reading Indigenous as a decolonizing act, Uh, whether it's about intergenerational trauma, speculative futures, colonization, resilience, family, or just everyday joy. Mm Books by Indigenous authors bring perspectives that are not part of um, many of our lived experience, and it can't be found anywhere else. Historically, uh, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis voices have not always been given the space um, in the publishing industry, and their stories have been told by other people. So I think taking the time to read books by Indigenous authors uh, puts their story back in their hands, and uh, it's really important. And this is a topic that I know we were, I think, universally pretty excited to talk about, um, all of us, so we can agree on that, which is exciting. And we are going to start with Liz's book.
2: Great. Thanks, Fiona. And um, that was really well said. So thank you for acknowledging that and um, such a great introduction to Yes, a topic that uh, we're all very excited to talk about today, which are indigenous authors. And so for my pick today, uh, I chose a book by an author that may already be well known to a lot of you. um, And that is Starlight by Richard Wagamese. So I admittedly, I'd never read any um, Richard Wagamese prior to this. But uh, the beautiful cover did draw me in and... um, also, the wonderful reviews. Sadly, this was the last book published by Richard Wagamese. It was actually uh, published posthumously, um, and he had he did not have the opportunity to finish the book prior to his death. But fear not, fortunately, his editor was able to uh, craft somewhat of a denouement to the to the end of the book, um, which, although it, it, it's bittersweet, because you feel like It was such a beautiful, at least I felt like it was such a beautiful book. Um, I did feel as though the editor did do justice in um, taking Wagamese's voice, who they were very familiar with, and wrapping things up as well as providing um, uh, a beautiful tribute at the end to the author. So um, this book, for those of you who are familiar with Wagamese's works, uh, it can be considered sort of the book that comes after in a chronology uh, to Medicine Walk. So the primary character of this book, his name is Frank Starlight. You've read Medicine Walk, then you'll recognize that name, because in that book, uh, Frank was a 16-year-old boy who had returned home to his father. And so in this book, in Starlight... Frank is an older man now um, who has inherited his father's farm, um, and he lives a very quiet and dignified life in his small community. So not only is he a man of the earth in terms of farming and ranching uh, and also working with his hands, but he is also very in tune with the world, the natural world around him. And one of the ways he likes to unwind uh, is to commune with nature at night. And in his area, this book takes place in Northern BC. um, He likes to go into the woods at night with his camera and look out for wolves. So he'll go running through the, through the woods in search of these beautiful creatures uh, that he enjoys taking photographs of. Now, Although Frank lives a very quiet and unassuming life and and mostly keeps to himself, into town come a woman named Emmy and her very young daughter. Now, these two happen to be on the run from Emmy's abusive ex. They did not part on good terms. And so now she is doing whatever she can to ensure that her and her daughter are safe. So they end up in this small town in which Frank lives, um, and she's hoping to shelter Emmy there. Now because they ran away uh, and are on the run, they don't have a lot of resources available to them. And unfortunately in this small town where they stick out because everybody knows one another, they get caught shoplifting so that the two have something to eat. Um, That's why they went to the store and tried to smuggle out some food. So Emmy is at risk of losing her daughter, unfortunately. Um, And this is where Frank happens to step in. So he uh, decides to take in Emmy and her daughter, um, so that they have a safe place to live. And over time, the two earn each other's trust uh, and get to come to an understanding about each other. And and what develops is a really understated uh, but beautiful story about human relationships, how the world around us can influence our behaviors, our character, uh, and also our relationships with each other. It was a is an incredibly beautifully written book. I wouldn't call it sparse, but uh, I found Wagamese's style to not have a lot of embellishment, um, which I which I really appreciate. So it was bittersweet to remind myself that sadly this is uh, this was Wagamese's last last work. Um, however, I do really look forward to going into uh, the backlist. Um, for Richard Wagamese, and um, catching up on all the other wonderful books that I've missed. That's
0: great. Thanks, Liz. Yeah, he was quite prolific, right? Like, yes, he, he has quite a few books. All right, uh, Corrine, you are up.
3: I feel like I'm on a bit of like a non-fiction kitsch and again using my strategy if uh if i want to explain something i go to children's books first and then kind of go out from there and so um a book that came out i feel like last year is An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People. So this is an adaptation of the original text by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who has been working with the National Indigenous Movement for about four decades. And it was adapted by two very distinguished writers, um, Dr. Debbie Reese, who is tribally enrolled at Nambe Pueblo. Um, She is also the author of the American Indians in Children's Literature blog, which is kind of required reading for anyone, who is interested in children's literature and the depiction of First Nations people, and uh, Jen Mendoza, who is a curriculum specialist, and who married into a Creek family. So they took the original text, which was meant for adults, it's part of a series called um, Revisioning History. So it takes what is the the narrative of American history and examines it from different, often uh, marginalized points of view. And what I really, really liked about this book is that it really challenges that fairy tale that we share with the United States, that the settling or colonization was this kind of easy, foretold process that um that there that the land was empty, that it was easy to walk into. And what I think this book does a really good job of is kind of showing, how massive this civilization was in North America, how massive and accomplished and varied and different and interconnected and um, and, and in order to settle it, how, how history has had to kind of spin that to make it okay for settlers to take the land from them. So it, it's part of like the systematic dehumanization and erasure of the history there so that you're able to kind of perpetuate that that myth. And so what I think this book does a really good job of is kind of challenging all the narratives about the history of the United States as well as the history of Canada because it uses much of the same strategies. Um, it's kind of written almost like a little, te- uh, like a textbook, like how you would approach a history of Canada or a history of the United States, but instead it's looking at the history of indigenous people in the United States. So... Uh, what I really like is that it'll give you kind of a section of history and then it'll give you qu- questions afterwards to, to think about or to, to challenge your thinking about certain things and why you think that they are the way that they are. So in addition to talking about things like Columbus, why is Columbus important? Why is it okay to celebrate someone like this? They take on different things like um, sports teams with, with racist names. Why is that okay? and really get you thinking about things in a way that if you are from a settler heritage haven't really had to consider that perspective so i I love that it is a history so it, it really does chronicle that whole history from uh pre contact up to Standing Rock. So it traces that line of resiliency, that line of, of strong leadership of people constantly fighting against that narrative and fighting against white supremacy. And it takes it all the way up to kind of current day. And I love that it has those those extra questions that really get you thinking and challenging your own Wiley held beliefs, because the history that we have been taught often is a fairy tale that benefits a certain group of people. And so books like this um, are so important to challenge us and to see what really happened beneath the surface and why. So I really encourage, um, if you're looking for a great book for middle schoolers or for high schoolers to start looking at an Indigenous history, um, this is a good one to start with.
0: Sounds like a really important book. Like you were saying, Karine, with the focus on resilience. That's something that I really like about Indigenous literature is I feel that's often a focus. And while there's always discussions of very difficult topics, it's really those these books are proof of resilience. So the book that I chose was A Mind Spread Out on the Ground uh, by Alicia Elliott. And uh, Alicia Elliott is a Tuscarora writer who moved to Six Nations Grand River Reserve uh, when she was 13. And this book is a collection of autobiographical essays on trauma, colonial legacies, identity, and family. And I actually listened to the audiobook version, which uh, is narrated by the author, um, and I would definitely recommend it because it was very powerful to have her essays uh, come from her own voice. And it's definitely a book that I want to read again, like maybe listen to it again and then read it again and then buy it so that it's there and I can look things up every time I think about it. Like, I just don't feel like I was able to absorb the complexity of it the first time. And I actually find it's a very difficult book to talk about, to find the right words because it's just, it it was amazing. (laughs) Um, But not necessarily in like a way where I can say specifically this is what she talked about because she talked about so much so in the title essay she talks about her young teen years um, living on the res in a two-bedroom trailer uh, with a family of seven she explores uh, mental illness that her mother went through and her own dehumanizing experience with therapy Throughout the book, she really centers the conflict in her life created by having a Haudenosaunee father and a white Catholic mother, and how in herself with uh, that mixed heritage, uh, she became both the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, She talks about before having her first child um, while she was pregnant. she you know, has this moment of wishing that her child uh, has blue eyes and light skin so that they'll have an easier life. Well, at the same time in her life, she's also trying to reclaim her language, her Tuscarora language and her culture. And just that her life is constantly filled with these these contradictions, these things that don't seem to fit together. Um, But she doesn't tiptoe around the fact that that is a cause of colonialism, And I really appreciate that, that she doesn't she doesn't internalize that blame that she's that she's able to to call that out. And I think it's a really powerful part of the book, uh, part of the essays. Um, The book is really resilient and beautiful. And although it's not the meaning of the title of the book, I really felt like I was observing a mind spread out on the ground. Uh, She really lets you into her her thoughts fully and doesn't back away when those thoughts are conflicting or confusing. And like, she's just such an amazing, beautiful writer. I don't have the words to recreate like how she writes, um, but it's, it. I definitely encourage you even to, uh, I think some of her, her essays are available online, like even to like, just check out one of her essays and see if you enjoy her writing style, because uh it was uh, a big turning point for me in my reading of just recognizing how much I appreciate um, authors who who let you into their mind in that way. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. Right. So I think Virginia is going to talk next. I'm mm-hmm. very excited to hear about this book.
4: Well, I'm glad you're excited. I'm pretty excited about this book. And I have to thank Liz for recommending this book to me. Um, I think earlier we talked about how the publishing industry could really do a better job in publishing own voices books. Um, And I was talking to Liz about How few I was able to find in the genres that I usually read. Like, I'm a big speculative fiction fan, so fantasy, science fiction, horror are the genres I usually read. So, I was kind of having a hard time finding. Uh, books by Indigenous authors in those genres. Um, so Liz suggested this book um, to me, and good choice, Liz. Thank you again. Um, so the book that I read for this category is Moon of the of Snow by Wabgishik Rice. The author is also a CBC host, and he does the Up North show in Northern Ontario. And he divides his time between Sudbury and the Waksaksing First Nation, where this book is set. So this is a dystopian novel. So a word of warning here that some of the things you're going to read about may be a bit too similar to what we are experiencing right now. So uh, if you are not quite ready to read about a dystopian world, uh, save it for later. It is uh, a really good book. So um, read that later. Um, So the book opens with Evan, who is uh, out hunting and getting ready for winter. Now in the Waksaksing First Nations, you know, they do have like a lot of the modern conveniences like picking up food from a grocery store and you know tv cell phones and all that but they're also taught to be self-sufficient and continue sort of their way of life of the Anishinaabe people so most of the people in the community will go out hunting just before winter to ensure that there is enough food for the family And not just for your own family, but also others in the community, um, because you you take care of each other. So here's Evan, you know, he just caught a moose and he's packing up and ready to go home. And when he got home, he realized that it was eerily quiet. And then he noticed, oh, right, the TV is off. Why is the TV off? Like that is always on around this time. So um, that was a little strange. And his partner, Nicole, came out to say that they actually haven't had a Satellite signal all day, which is not unusual. You know, annoying, but not unusual. You know, especially in the winter, in like and right now, there's like a big snowstorm going on outside. So yeah, that's not unusual that they could lose a signal. Eh, it's gonna. They figure it's gonna come back tomorrow. They woke up tomorrow, the next day, and uh, they notice that the clock is off, and then the fridge is not working, and it seems like they have lost power entirely. And again not too unusual and you know they're not too concerned yet it is winter after all but after a few days of no power people are starting to get a little antsy you know and the local grocery store is pretty much like out of food because people are starting to stock up the phone lines are dead and so they couldn't really contact hydro to find out what's going on and when power will, will be restored So to calm people down, the council meets and they talk about like measures to make sure everyone is taken care of, you know, maybe they need to start doing inventories of what people have. Um, They are thinking about like, let's get the generator going to make sure that the food that we have are not spoiled. And they're going to start asking people to conserve energy to make sure they can last a few weeks at least, you know. They do have a delivery of diesel coming. But again, with this non-stop snowstorm, like who knows whether they would get supply and when they would get it so they want to make sure that they're prepared um, at least for a few weeks and then one day they were out there like plowing snow and clearing off the roads and they noticed two vehicles approaching and it turns out they were two youths that have gone to a nearby town to go to college and when they showed up they were in tears they were so glad to manage to find their way back home And then they told them what happened outside. It is not just here, but apparently there is a blackout everywhere. And it's just chaos out there. You know, the school said, you know, stay put, stay in the dorm. But they realized they they really should get out now, you know, um, because things are getting ugly out there. And so they stole two snowmobiles and they left the school while they still can. So now they know no supplies is coming for a long, long time, and they have to figure out, like, how they can keep each other safe. So what else can they do? So they're going to have to get everybody together and to figure this out. And of course, while they were planning for the snowstorm, another visitor showed up, and this time is an outsider, an outsider that is going to bring chaos to them. As mentioned, this is a dystopian novel, so what's happening in the story is, is bleak, is awful, but I have to say as a reader, I feel like a warmth that kind of protects me from the cold and the snowstorm and all the dire things that happen in the book. It definitely have to do with the, the closely-knitted community, you know, especially Evan's family. They're just so loving, and they're like such a functional family, which is so nice to see in a dystopian novel. And you feel protected by them, you know, and you feel that like the way of life, you know, the way they take care of each other, they're gonna come out okay. At least if it really feels like that. So you know, and and there's definitely horrible people out there and horrible things. And people have done some very horrible things to survive in the book. But but it's not hopeless, which is. Really, a nice sort of change of pace when you're looking at a dystopian novel, um, and I and in the book also you, you get a chance to learn about the Anishinaabe people and and sort of their way of life, their values, and and the author weaves in these details and these aspects like into the story in a very sort of very natural way, like you don't feel f- they don't feel forced or didactic, you know. So you're getting a really really good apocalyptic story but you're also getting a really good introduction to the Singh First Nations. Um, and, and so it's, it's a story that I, I really appreciate. And as I was like reading more about the book, I found out that there's actually going to be a second book coming out and, and he's got a publishing deal already for it. He hasn't written it yet, but it's coming. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, so again, this book is called Moon of the Crusted Snow by Wab Gishik Rice. great.
3: Mm-hmm. So it's like we've got one more left. Sadie. Mm-hmm. Okay. So
1: I'm actually, I'm actually going to also talk about a dystopian novel, which is not usually my genre. Um, it is not the kind of book that I tend to kind of move towards. Uh, but I am going to talk about The Marrow Thieves. And um, this is by Métis author Cherie Demeline. And Cherie is from the Georgian Bay Métis community in Ontario. And I just wanna start off actually with a quote from Cherie, kind of looking at the difference between what what she would like to be identified as and recognized as as a writer. So she says, I would love to be recognized as a writer of indigenous stories. I'm not a Canadian writer. This is what is now known as Canada. It means something different to and for me. Uh, So that quote was, it was actually quite powerful to me. to kind of hear that she is an Indigenous writer, um, she's not a Canadian writer. Um, but The Marrow Thieves, uh, it does take place in what is now known as Canada, um, and it actually takes place in a future world, um, and it is set in a dystopian future. And in this future, uh, the world that we know has been destroyed, and it's been destroyed by pollution, it's been destroyed by global warming, climate change, um, coastal cities have crumbled into the ocean, natural disasters like hurricanes and earthquakes, they've destroyed communities. And as an effect of all of these horrific events and the trauma that people have gone through, most people have lost the ability to dream. Now the exception to this is the indigenous peoples of North America and they continue to dream and they carry the ability to dream in the marrow of their bones. Now, because of this ability, the indigenous peoples are hunted to extract the marrow of their bones um, and have it turned into a serum that that those who do not have this ability, um, mainly white people can use to gain the ability to dream back. So that's sort of the premise um, of the world, the premise of the story, definitely seems a very dark world, a world that I think is very easy to imagine. Um, And I say that, that I recognize how how hard that might be for some people to hear, Um, but I think that it is a world that looking at the way our world is now, it is easy to see how we could get um, to this world. So the story begins with two brothers, Francis or Frenchie and Mitch. Their parents have been lost Um, to what are called schools now these schools are where people are taken to have their bone marrow extracted and these schools are very strongly based on the residential schools Um, they've taken that idea and they have brought it back and turned it into these centers where they take indigenous people to extract their bone marrow from them Uh, so they've lost both of their parents to these schools and they are now on their own so they are hiding in a treehouse, and Mitch has just found a bag of Doritos and they're both very excited about this. Uh, but when they open the bag of Doritos and start eating it, they are discovered by a group of recruiters. Recruiters are the people who go around searching for indigenous peoples and taking them to the schools. So in order to save his younger brother's life, Mitch sacrifices himself, allowing Frenchie to get away. We now shoot ahead about five years later, Frenchie is 15 years old. Uh, Frenchie is a Metis boy. He has now lost his whole family to the schools. So, after his brother is taken, Frenchie is taken in by a group who are hiding and traveling north. It is said that the north is safer. It is said that the Indigenous communities in the north have found a way to survive and have recreated the communities that were lost in other parts of the country. The group is led by an Anishinaabe man named Migwans and this group kind of becomes Frenchie's found family on this journey. Uh, So as the story goes on, him and his family continue to journey north. You learn about each of the people in the group. Um, You learn their coming to story, which is sort of how they found their way to this group. Um, what, What their path was, what their journey was to find, to find the group together. Um, now, as I mentioned, I don't tend to read a lot of dystopian fiction, uh, but I found that, similar to what Virginia was saying, well, on the surface, this was a very dystopian story. Um, it was a story of survival. It, The majority of it really focuses on the characters, the family, the relationships um, that they have with each other, the history that they have as well. Um, it focuses on the lost languages of the Indigenous people and how they are trying to find their community again, how they're trying to rebuild that language, how they're trying to rebuild the stories and the histories um, that have now been lost. And it's similar to what Virginia said. It is actually, I found an uplifting story. Um, It was definitely a tearjerker um, I'm finding Kareen, that I might be closer to you where I do tend to cry at uh, more books than I thought that I did um, uh, but for for different reasons I think so it was not super sad um, the ending does kind of uplift you which is which is wonderful the characters are so strong um, there's there's kind of playfulness to it, Uh, Frenchie, there's a young woman, Rose, who comes into their group who Frenchie has a crush on. So you kind of experience that teenage crush um, and a bit of romance as well and and kind of navigating that whole thing. Um, But it's, yeah, it was a very powerful book. It was a very interesting and compelling book and I would recommend it 100%.
3: Fantastic. And a Canada
1: Reads book, if I remember. It is, yes. Yeah. 2018 Canada Reads uh, selection. Yeah.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Thank you uh, on behalf of everyone for this little book chat. Enjoy your reading.
1: Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional.